So a few days ago, Candace and I were looking for a house in the area, and we found one that we really liked. It was in a nice neighborhood, close to the church. The, the kids had already claimed bedrooms for themselves, and we were really envisioning ourselves in it right away. We could, we could see this working, but we had a friend come and do an unofficial inspection for us, and he went into the crawl space, and, and you really wouldn't believe what he discovered down there. One of the supporting beams of the house didn't quite reach to the foundation. It was just, it was just there's that much space between the bottom of the beam and the actual ground. And, I mean, I'm not a contractor, but that seems like something that should reach, you know? Like, it should, it should hit bottom somewhere. But this didn't, and not only that, but in order to close the gap, the, the beam was literally resting on a pile of books. Like, I can just imagine the contractor, like, seeing, like, oh, that didn't quite reach. But, the, but what are we going to do? Well, I did this trick at home with my bed. You know, where we put a book, on, and that's, we'll just put some books under there, and no big deal. Needless to say, we didn't buy the house. But like, that's, that's not safe. This house looks great on the outside, but it would never pass an inspection without something being taken care of with that beam. And the truth is that the same thing can be true for many people in the world today. It look great on the outside, but upon closer examination, something is terribly wrong. You know, there's a reason that so many people today tell you that humans are basically good. So many people believe that, right? Humans are, we're basically good. The reason is because from the outside looking in, it seems like we're basically good, doesn't it? I mean, most people I interact with day to day around town seem to be generally kind people who, who just want to be good neighbors. We seem basically good, but here's the thing. We're only seeing the outside. What would someone say if they got into the crawl space of your life? What would someone see if they could look inside your home, look inside your marriage, look inside your thoughts, look inside your heart? Now, we might not be able to do that ourselves, but Jesus can do that. Jesus does do that. One day, Jesus will do that. He comes and he inspects every one of our lives and our hearts. And when he does, here's the question Jesus is asking. Is this person fruitful or are they fruitless? Is this person fruitful or fruitless? Does this person's life bear spiritual fruit or not? If Jesus got into the crawl space of your life, what would he see? You can open your Bibles to Matthew 21, continuing our series through Matthew called Following the Fulfillment. Our passage this morning is Matthew 21, verses 18 through 46. It's a little longer this morning, but we'll see why it all holds together as we go. This passage comes on the heels of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and it begins a section of Matthew where Jesus enters into really his most public and pointed exchanges with the religious leaders of Israel that he's had yet. We've seen exchanges, we've seen confrontation, but for the next several chapters, it comes to a boiling level. Now remember, Matthew is writing this gospel to help us know how to follow the fulfillment, how to walk as true followers of Jesus. And so, with that purpose in mind, here's what Matthew is writing for in these chapters. Here's what he wants us to avoid as we think about what it means to follow Christ. Matthew wants to make sure that no professing follower of Jesus is actually a Pharisee at heart. He wants to make sure that no one who, who says and thinks they're following Jesus actually is fruitless on the inside. 
And these chapters are given to us not so that we would just point at the religious leaders and say what hypocrites they were. No, this is given to us so that we would look in the mirror and we could be sure that we aren't falling into the same exact errors that they did. And so in that light, this morning, let's humbly receive what the Lord wants to show us. Because the passage is somewhat longer, rather than reading through it in its entirety, this morning we're going to read through it as we go, walking through one section at a time, and we'll think about some key truths the passage reveals to us at the end. And so we're going to walk through this passage first, three main sections to the story this morning, three main sections, and it begins in verses 18 through 19, section 1, Jesus curses a fruitless tree. Jesus curses a fruitless tree. Matthew 21, we're reading 18 and 19. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. In the morning, he's returned to the city, and he becomes hungry. Don't miss the humanity of Jesus in this passage. He became hungry. He wanted some breakfast as the day begins. And so what does he do? Well, verse 19 tells us he sees a fig tree by the wayside, and he goes to it. He, he sees a fig tree, he says, I'm, I'm going to eat some figs on my way to Jerusalem. But when he gets there, he finds nothing on it but only leaves. Well, I'm not an expert on fig trees, but I did learn a few things this week preparing for this message, and, and I can compare it to pecan trees here, because we do have pecan trees in our yard. And something we've learned about pecan trees is that they don't produce pecans every year. Uh, some years you're going to have uh, no pecans, some years you're going to have 500 pounds of pecans, and it just changes year to year. But that's not what fig trees are like. For a fig tree, if a fig tree has leaves, it should have figs. If there's leaves, there should be figs. And so Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree full of leaves. And he says, I'm going to go to that fig tree expecting that there are going to be figs on that tree to eat. But there are no figs. When he gets there, there's no figs. And so what does Jesus do next? It might surprise us. Look at the second half of verse 19. He said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, it's just a little surprising that in this moment, there's, he's hungry. There's no figs, and he curses it. I mean, this is like what you call hanger, right? At least that's what we might think. That's not what's going on, though. Jesus isn't hangry. This is not just Jesus using his power in frustration that there's no figs in this tree. The answer, just as with every time he demonstrates his power, is that Jesus is teaching something. Jesus is revealing something. This is an intentional act meant to convey truth to the disciples and to us. But before we can see what that truth is, we just need to keep reading in the story. We need to go to section two. Jesus commends the power of faith. First, Jesus curses the fruitless tree. Second, Jesus commends the power of faith. When the disciples saw it, verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? You know, you think after all the disciples have seen at this point, healings, exorcisms, feeding 5,000, feeding 4,000, stilling storms, walking on water. You'd think after all of this that they wouldn't be so surprised by Jesus doing something like this. But as we've seen over and over again, they were slow to understand. They were slow to believe in the true identity of Jesus. And so, again, they ask him, how did you do that, Jesus? Well, Jesus doesn't tell them how he caused the fig tree to wither, but instead he takes the opportunity to teach them what they can do. Look at verses 21 and 22. And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, 
you will not only do what's been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Jesus says, you think cursing a fig tree is amazing? What if I told you that you can move an entire mountain into the sea? The image of throwing a mountain into the sea is meant to convey an absolutely impossible thing. It cannot be done, except that Jesus tells the disciples, you can do that. How? If you have faith and do not doubt. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Jesus says that by faith, what is absolutely impossible is not only possible, it's actually guaranteed. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Not only possible, but guaranteed. Now we need to step back and reflect on this for a minute because some people take all of this and apply it in entirely the wrong way. Is Jesus actually teaching that we can ask God for anything we want, and if we believe and do not doubt, then he will give it to us? Many people affirm this very thing based on this passage and others like it. God will give us whatever we ask as long as we believe. You know, one time I was in someone's home and it was their home office and I, I saw that this person had on their wall uh, what they had labeled their dream board. And underneath it had pictures of a car and money and a few other things that you might throw in there to just your vision of the good life, your dream board. And the whole idea of this dream board was this, if I believe, God will give it to me. These are the things I'm believing, and, and, and I know God will give. Is this what Jesus is saying? We should go make a dream board and then, and then pray that God will give it to us, and if we believe, he will? Well, the answer is absolutely not, and here's why. Listen, it's not that the promise isn't true. It's not that, it's, it's not that there should be an asterisk on this statement. Whatever you ask and pray, you will receive asterisk, excluding material prosperity, Asterisk, excluding these things. No, it's not, it's not that the promise has limitations. It's limited, not in itself, but it's limited by the reality of what true faith actually asks for. What does true faith really seek? True faith doesn't seek self-glory. True faith doesn't seek uh, to move the mountain of material prosperity. True faith seeks the glory of God. True faith seeks to move mountains that lead to the praise of his name in all the earth. That's what Jesus is commending to the disciples, asking God for impossible things that will glorify his name and receiving those things by faith. That's what Jesus is commending. He says, this is a promise, this is a guarantee. If you have faith, whatever you ask in prayer, understand that true faith will ask for things that glorify the Father, you will receive. So Jesus curses a fruitless tree tree, and then he commends the power of faith. We're going to keep going. We'll come back around to some of these themes a little more deeply. But now third, the longest section, Jesus confronts the fruitless leaders. This is going to take us all the way to the end of the chapter, verses 23 through 46. Jesus confronts the fruitless leaders. The confrontation actually begins with the leaders confronting Jesus first. Look at verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Remember what happened last week. Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out the money changers. And then after he did that, he healed the lame and the blind. And now he's back in the temple, and as always, surely he's teaching with authority. And the chief priests and the elders, well, they're the ones that actually 
have authority in the temple. They're supposed to lead the religious life of Israel. And so they asked Jesus to explain himself. Who gave you the authority to come into the temple and do these things? Well, Jesus responds not by defending himself, not by claiming where his authority is from, but by taking the opportunity to confront them who have so vehemently rejected his ministry. And he begins by turning the tables on them in verse 24. He says, I'll also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Jesus says, just answer one question, I'll answer your question. Was John the Baptist a true prophet? That's what he's asking. Was John the Baptist a true prophet? Was his baptism from heaven or from man? Was it something that, did God send him? Or did he send himself? Did he just appear as a false prophet? The question's not random. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah. John the Baptist came preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist pointed people to Jesus and said, this is the Christ, this is the one. And so if they acknowledged what all the people acknowledged, that John was indeed a prophet, they would have to acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. So Jesus really expertly is engaging them in a way that's going to confront them. This, this question about John is really a question about him. If John's a prophet, then the implications are Jesus is who John said he is. Well, what do they do with this question? Matthew tells us about their deliberations. It seems that they get in a little huddle together. He's pictured them in a circle saying, what should we say? And they discuss it among themselves, verse 25, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man... We're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. I imagine they didn't say, we don't know very often. But here they decide it would be better to say, they aren't sure, than to be caught either acknowledging John's testimony or disagreeing with the crowds. They think it's better, we're just going to swallow the pill this time, say we don't know, to save face and not be caught in this question. But Jesus doesn't really let them off the hook. He says, neither will I tell you about what authority I do these things. You're not going to answer my question. I'm not going to answer yours. And he could have stopped there, but he continues. He continues to confront them by giving them a parable. Listen to what he says, verses 28 through 32. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. You did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The parable is simple. A father asks both of his sons to work in his vineyard. One refuses at first, but later changes his mind and obeys. The other says he'll obey, but he never does. And Jesus says, which one is obedient? Let me just, children, if you're following this, which, which child is, is obedient? The one who says, I'll do it and doesn't do it, or the one who said no, but then they went and obeyed after? Which one obeyed? Well, the one who said I'm not going to, but then change their mind, right? The one who actually did it in the end. 
And the religious leaders acknowledged that, that it's the first son, the one who rebelled at first, but then obeyed, who actually did the Father's will. And then Jesus drives the point home. Those you call sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, they're the first son. And you're like the second son. They rebelled against God. They, they said, no, we will not do it, but then they changed their minds. They changed their minds and they returned. When John came, they repented. You, on the other hand, you claim obedience. You say you obey, but you don't actually obey and you're not repentant. Then you're the second son. As bold as that parable is, Jesus doesn't stop there. He keeps just driving his point home. Verse 33 says, here another parable. This is all one exchange. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted the vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Jesus begins this parable by explaining that this master plants this incredible vineyard for himself. It's, it's got a trench. It's got a, a tower. He, he goes away and he leases it to tenants to take care of it while he's gone and to tend to his vineyard and to make sure that there's fruit and to bring the fruit to him. But the tenants, they're evil. They're wicked. And so whenever the master from another country sends servants to them, what do they do? They stone them. They beat them. They kill them. He sends more. They do the same thing. At this point, Jesus is clearly referencing rebellious Israel in the Old Testament. He's referencing Israel. Isaiah 5 describes Israel as the Lord's vineyard, the Lord's vineyard that he planted, and he looked for fruit. But whenever God sent prophets to Israel, what did they do? They rejected them. He's looking back at their history and saying, this is, this is what you've always been like. But then the story takes a surprising turn in verse 37. Finally, the master sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The master of the vineyard decides, after sending so many servants and having them treated so wickedly, he says, I'm not going to send a servant this time. I'm going to send my son. And he expects that his son will receive better treatment because he's his son. But what happens? The wicked tenants instead act even more wickedly. They see an opportunity to actually own the vineyard for themselves, and they kill the master's son when he comes. At this point in the parable, Jesus asks the religious leaders in verse 40, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? The response is rather passionate. It seems like they're unaware at this point that Jesus is speaking about them. In verse 41, they answer, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. That's the religious leaders talking. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. Little do they know that they are the wicked tenants. And in a matter of days, they're going to do this very thing to the master's son, to Jesus himself, which of course means that they have just pronounced the judgment they themselves deserve. To help them understand Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 to them. It's the same psalm that the people were singing Hosanna from just the day before in the temple. Same psalm Jesus quotes from later in the psalm. In verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? 
This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. He's saying to Israel's leaders, I'm the master's son. You are the tenants who will reject me. I'm the stone that you will cast to the side, but God's going to take and make me the cornerstone of his true temple. You think you have authority in this temple, but I'm the cornerstone of God's true temple. And if this is true, then here's the conclusion Jesus brings to them in verse 43. Therefore I tell you, because you are rejecting the Son, because you are rejecting the stone, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus says, your rejection of me makes you a fruitless people, and therefore you will not be included in the kingdom. You will be broken to pieces. You will be crushed by God's cornerstone. Look how the passage ends. The leaders respond with perception, but not with repentance. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. They know what he's saying, but they don't hear him. They don't turn. Jesus curses a fruitless tree. Jesus commands the power of faith, and then Jesus confronts the fruitless leaders. Now, what is God speaking to us today through this chapter? I think we see three truths about fruitlessness and fruitfulness. Three truths about fruitlessness and fruitfulness. The first truth is this. We are all fruitless and deserving of God's judgment. We are all fruitless and deserving of God's judgment. Go back to the beginning of the passage with me. Jesus is cursing of a fruitless fig tree. We said that Jesus was not hangry when he did that. He did not curse this tree because he was frustrated that there were no figs. No, as with every one of his miracles, Jesus was teaching something and revealing something. And it's his statement to the religious leaders in verse 43 that reveal what it signified. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. You see, the fruitless fig tree represented the fruitless leaders of Israel. Like the tree, which was full of leaves, these leaders looked like they would be fruitful on the outside. They were teachers of the Scripture. They strictly adhered to the law. You would expect fruit from them, but upon further inspection, when you got close, you realized there was no real fruit in the midst of all the leaves. There was no love for others. There was no mercy towards sinners. There was no desire for God's glory. They looked spiritually healthy, but they were in reality spiritually fruitless. And what will happen to spiritually fruitless people? Just as Jesus cursed the fruitless tree, so one day Jesus will judge fruitless people. That's what he means in verse 44 when he says, And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. These are images of final judgment. Judgment will come on those who don't bear good fruit. And Jesus himself is the judge. He is the cornerstone that falls on the people. It will be as final as his judgment on the fig tree. May you never bear fruit again. This is an irrevocable verdict given against the fruitless. An everlasting judgment that will be pronounced. That's what the fig tree represented. The fruitless leaders. Now, we can see that they were fruitless, but the point I'm making is that we are all fruitless. Why would I say we are all fruitless? Because this is what the rest of the scripture says. Consider just one passage out of so many we could look at. One passage, Psalm 53, 
verses 2 and 3. Listen to this psalm. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This is God's verdict from heaven as he looks down on the earth. No one seeks him. No one does good. No one has fruit. The religious leaders of Israel are not alone in their fruitlessness. Each one of us is a fruitless tree that deserves God's judgment. But here's the good news of the gospel, that when Jesus came, he didn't come to bring that judgment. He came to save us from that judgment, which leads us to the second truth we need to see today. God sent his son to be judged in the place of fruitless people. God sent his son to be judged in the place of fruitless people. Our passage deals with both a fruitless tree and fruitless people, but it's important for us to observe that only the tree is actually cursed. The fruitless people, on the other hand, are only warned. And this has everything to do with why Jesus came. He didn't come to judge the fruitless. He came to save them. He didn't come to shut them out of the kingdom of God. He came to make a way into the kingdom of God. He didn't come to pronounce the final verdict of judgment. He came to announce what that verdict will be so that they could turn and be freed from it. This is why he took the opportunity to confront them, to, 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 to keep pressing in, because Jesus loves these leaders. He, he wants them to turn. He wants them to be saved. He came that they would be saved. Even in the bold and hard truths he gives to them, his ministry is one of love and mercy. He confronts their fruitlessness so that they might recognize it and avoid the fate of the fruitless tree. He didn't come just to expose our fruitlessness even. He didn't come merely as a prophet to say, you're fruitless. He came to be judged in the place of the fruitless. We need to think a little more about this second parable. In the parable itself, the master of the vineyard seems almost naive, doesn't he, to send his own son? I mean, they've been killing his servants over and over again. Seems a little naive to say, surely they'll respect my son. We're not actually that surprised that when the son arrives, the wicked tenants don't respect him. They kill him. But is this what happened when God sent his son into the world? Did God the Father wrongly think, I'll send my son, and this time they'll respect him, and they'll receive and obey? Was God surprised when he sent Jesus to Israel, and they didn't receive him? No, that's not what Jesus is illustrating. The parable illustrates their wickedness, and it signifies that they're going to reject Christ, but it's not due to ignorance of God. I mean, this is why Jesus then quotes from Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Here's the question. What exactly was the Lord's doing? What was the Lord's doing in that statement. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now we might say that the builders rejected Christ by crucifying him, but then what the Lord did was he made him the cornerstone by resurrecting him. And this is true. After the leaders rejected Jesus and delivered him to be crucified, on the third day God raised him from the dead and he made him the cornerstone of his new people. The Lord did that. That's the Lord's doing. But when we look at scriptures closely, we realize something more. It wasn't just his resurrection, that was the Lord's doing. His rejection was the Lord's doing. 
Israel's rejection of Christ was the Lord's doing. God was not surprised when his son was rejected. God knew and God planned for his son to be rejected. God spoke of it through Isaiah 700 years earlier. In Isaiah 53, 11, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. When God sent his son, he knew his son would be crushed. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the apostle Peter put it this way. He said, this Jesus, speaking to these same people, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You rejected him. You crucified him. This was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He delivered him up. We could go to dozens of other passages to confirm this truth. God sent his son to be rejected. God gave up his son to death. God planned for his son to be crucified. Why? Because God's love for fruitless people who deserve his judgment. Listen, Jesus cursed the fruitless tree to demonstrate what we deserve. But a few days later, he would be hung on the tree of the cross to take the judgment that we deserve. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the only way for fruitless people to be saved by receiving the one who was judged in our place and then resurrected from the dead. And to all who do receive him, God does something incredible in our lives. He transforms us into fruitful trees. He transforms us ultimately into fruitful trees. This leads to the final truth we need to see this morning. Fruitfulness is possible only through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Fruitfulness is possible only through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus was judged in the place of fruitless people. But we understand that not all fruitless people will be saved in the end. He was judged for fruitless people, but not everyone will be saved. So how do we know who actually has received this salvation that he brings? And we know by our fruitfulness. We know who has received the salvation by whether they bear spiritual fruit. This is the other side of the coin in verse 43. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Well, who are these people? Who are the people who produce the fruit of the kingdom? It's those who have repented of their sins and are living by faith in Jesus Christ. Consider the first parable again. Remember that there were two sons. At first, both disobeyed their father. One disobeyed openly, the other refused, the other disobeyed hypocritically. One refused to work in the vineyard, the other just said, I will, and then didn't do it. At this stage in the parable, neither son has done anything good. They're both fruitless in their own way. But what happens? The first son changes his mind. And that word, those words, changes his mind. They have the same term that is translated, they repented. They repented. The first son changed his mind. He repented. He turned back to obeying the father. We don't see in the story what led him to change his mind, but at some point he must have apprehended that my father loves me, and he's asked me to do this, and I want to obey him because of his love, because he's a good father. He repented. And if we're going to be truly fruitful, we must repent of our unfruitfulness. We must repent of our sins. We need to do what the tax collectors and the prostitutes did when John the Baptist came. We confess our sins, 
we grieve over our sins, we turn from our sins, and we turn our hearts back to the will of the Father. We must change our minds about both our sin and about the Lord. In repentance, you're changing your mind. You're, you're, you're saying that I, I used to think sin would satisfy me, but I don't think that anymore. I don't believe that anymore. I'm changing my mind about my sin. I'm changing my mind about God. I used to think God was against me, that he was keeping things from me, but now I see he's a good, loving father, and I'm turning to him. In repentance, we're changing our mind, and we're turning our lives from sin to our Father in heaven. We must repent. And in that repentance, we must place all our faith in Jesus Christ alone. He is the only way for us to be saved from the judgment we deserve, and we must rely on his death and resurrection alone for the forgiveness of our sins and for our acceptance in God's kingdom. We can never make ourselves fruitful enough to be in God's kingdom. All, all of our efforts to try to be fruitful on our own will just be, as Paul Tripp has said, stapling fruit to a dead tree. God's going to see that this isn't real, this isn't true, but if we come to Jesus, rely on him alone, what, what God will do is he will come and he will change our hearts from the inside out. As we place our trust in Jesus, God unites us to him, God changes our hearts, God gives us his spirit, and here's what happens. He brings fruit into our lives. When we do these things, when we repent of our sins and place our trust in Jesus, then we can experience the reality of his promise. Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what's been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you'll receive if you have faith. Church, in light of the whole passage, it's, it's, it's obvious emphasis on fruitlessness and fruitfulness and our need to be fruitful with Father. And in light of all of that, then, then what is the mountain that we are asking God to move? In, in this context, in this setting, when Jesus tells the disciples that, what is the thing that we are asking God to do when we come to him and pray in faith? What is it? What are we asking God to do, church? We should be asking for fruit for our own spiritual fruitfulness. We should be asking God, make us a fruitful people. That's the impossible thing. Like That's the impossible thing. We cannot bear fruit on our own. But if we repent of our sins, put our trust in Jesus, and trusting in him, we ask God, then God will do that. He will do the impossible thing. He will move that mountain, and we will be a people who bear fruit, a people who are marked by love for him, and love for others, a people marked by mercy and compassion, a people who increasingly bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruit that Jesus is looking for that we can never produce on our own, but when we are united to him by faith, trusting in him, turning from our sins, and praying, God, make us fruitful, make us holy, make us like your Son, Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. We are fruitless in and of ourselves, but by faith in Jesus, God will make us a fruitful tree. And so let's pray that way this morning as we close. Our Father, we confess that when we were left to ourselves, we were indeed fruitless. We confess that we had nothing in our lives or in our hearts that was commendable before you. Nothing to 
get us closer to acceptance in your kingdom. Nothing that you could look at and say, that's truly good, this person's truly seeking me. None of us were like that. We were fruitless, and we deserve your judgment, but we praise you that you are a God of love and grace, and that you sent your son Jesus, and you planned when you sent him that he would take the judgment we deserve so that we would never face that. We praise you for your son, Jesus. We praise you that in him we can be saved from that judgment, and we praise you that by being united to him in faith, we can actually bear the fruit that you look for. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make us a people producing the fruits of the kingdom. We pray for you to do this impossible thing in us, to move this mountain in us, to make us a people who truly love you and love each other, a people truly marked by joy, people truly marked by peace and patience and kindness, a people truly marked by mercy and compassion. Father, we pray that you would do the impossible in us, make us like Jesus, and we believe that you will because you've united us to him. He is a sufficient Savior. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.